Well, according to a recent study from LifeWay Research, two-thirds of American young adults who attend a Protestant church regularly for at least a year as a teenager say they also dropped out for at least a year between the ages of 18 and 22. I don't know if I read that too quickly, but two out of three students who attend high school youth groups step away from their faith for at least a year when they're 18 to 22. There, there are a lot of reasons for that, and some that you would wonder about and some that you would guess at, but the reasons that they gave were that they moved to college and were no longer attending their church. Their church members seemed judgmental or hypocritical. Uh, they no longer felt connected to the people in their church. They disagreed with their church's stance on political or social issues. And then, of course, many of them had to work on Sundays. Those were the things that they said took them away. Now, I'm not so interested in what took them away, and I'm not really even interested in the, the total number there or the percentage of students that, that um, move away, because this has been a problem for every generation, and it will continue to be a problem for future generations. I, one of the things that struck me as I was looking, I said, oh, there's got to be statistics about this somewhere, right? So I looked, of course, and one of the things that I noticed is they were writing books about this when I was a teenager. I mean, this has been a problem for generations now. What this means to us, though, is not so much you and your kids, you and your family, as it is all of us and the next generation. It means that what you do with your faith and how you approach church isn't merely about you. It's not important just because you think it's important to you. What you do has ramifications for those who would come after you. One of the things that I will say is I don't know any church leader or any parent that isn't interested and concerned to pass on their faith to the next generation. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 78. So I want to invite you to uh, take your Bibles and look at Psalm 78. One of the things that Psalm 78 will do for us is that it will give us some comfort and some help to let us know that the future is not merely a matter of fate. And your children need not be subject to chance. Psalm 78 is specifically targeted at the current generation. The current generation is you, by the way. And Psalm 78 looks back so that we can take aim at the future. It's a vision of the future that, that sees at least three generations ahead. And it answers the questions, how do you talk to the next generation about the Lord? And what do you tell them? Look, let's look at Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1. It is a teaching psalm or a masculine of Asaph. 
And he says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So verse 1 says that this was a a dark saying from of old. A a simpler translation would be, this is simply an ancient riddle. So I'm going to tell you, he says, an ancient riddle. And this ancient riddle really is, um, how do you pass... The, the faith on to the next generation. It's a riddle why the next generation would believe. It's a riddle why God would be so faithful and the next generation be unfaithful. It's a riddle to think that God would have lavished his blessing on his people when they had been so awful to him. It is an ancient riddle that is unraveled as the next generation embraces the faith of their fathers. And so as you think about this, as you think about passing the the faith to the next generation, you need to be clear, at least, about what is to be passed on and about why it is to be passed on. What is the content of the delivery from one generation to the next? What is the motive of the delivery from one generation to the next generation? And that really is pretty clear in these verses, verses 1 through 8. The content is the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and wonders in his law. That's what, that's what Asaph wants to be passed on to the next generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, his wonders, and his law. And so how do you do that? What is there for you that you can say to your children or your grandchildren or those next generation uh, around you? What can you tell them about all that God has done? As you know, I had the privilege of growing up in a believing home. And a couple weeks ago, some long, uh, some lifelong friends Uh, came to visit my parents, and they invited us over to dinner because I had known them my whole life as well. And as uh, she's prone to do, we're sitting around the dinner table, and (laughs) Marcia says, "Um, Lane wants to know 
how you guys met each other. <laughs> and um, she, Marcia does that kind of thing sometimes. Better to Lane than to me. But Lane wants to know how you guys met each other. So out came the story about how they um, were in the Air Force together and um, they talked about uh, how, you know, they had lived in Florida and Jim had come to faith in Christ there. And I'd remembered that. I'd heard that. There were other things that came up that I didn't remember. Uh, they talked about how we had gone to visit them there in Florida and different things. And then uh, a weekend, a specific weekend came up. And, I rem and it was fun for me because when I was a little kid, I remembered this weekend. In fact, this is one of my favorite weekends of that entire year. I, I, I remember it was the 4th of July party in our backyard. And uh, some of you remember what 4th of July parties back then were like, but the, the central feature, you must know, was homemade ice cream. And it wasn't just homemade ice cream like, hey, we're plugging this in and it's going to have ice cream when we're done. It's like an event because you have to sit there and do this, right? You crank it yourself, hand crank ice cream, ice cream maker. So we're cranking the ice cream maker and, you know, somebody's arms get tired and the next person steps in and they crank the ice cream maker. And this actually went through the whole neighborhood. Everybody kind of took their turn and never turned to ice cream. And we couldn't for the life of us figure out why it didn't turn ice cream. So I'm, I'm seven at the time. I mean, uh, number one, I just can't wait for the ice cream. Number two is just getting sort of stranger and stranger why it's not becoming ice cream. And finally, we took the whole thing apart, and there was no paddle in the middle that stirs the ice cream <laughs> and makes it into ice cream. And it, we were just spinning this uh, little uh, ice cream basket, basically, and it never became ice cream. Well... That's what I remember. Of course, that was extremely memorable for seven-year-olds. Yeah, that was the highlight. Um, but what I learned last week was that wasn't all that happened that weekend. Because um, that weekend, Jim and Barb had come to visit our family, and it was that weekend that they began to talk with one another and dream about what God might do uh, with them so that instead of investing the rest of their lives as um, pilots or whatever, they were going to move to Montana and start a Christian boys' ranch. And as, you know, I reflect now on this weekend, the ice cream isn't near as significant to me as that because it turns out that that weekend actually changed my life, and I didn't even know it. That weekend, I mean, I ended up being, you know, one of the only Christian boys to ever go on the ranch. But God moved us to Montana. God got us involved in a Bible preaching church and really did change the trajectory of my life because of that weekend. And I really had missed that until just a couple weeks ago. And I share that with you because I don't want you to let your kids miss that. I want, I want you to be out front with, here, this is one of the things God's doing in our lives. What can, and, and this is the way to frame it. What are you doing in your life that can only be explained because of the reality of God in your life?
What are you doing that counts on God doing glorious deeds and wondrous works? Or what are you going to pass on? See, that's how I want you to think about it. Have you prayed and God has given you an answer? Have you invested your life in another person? In fact, even between services, I heard of somebody who had done that. And God was changing that person. And, you know, people need to know that. In fact, I, I could ask you this. Why would you hide that from the next generation? Don't be too busy or too bashful. Don't be too preoccupied with making a living to share with the next generation what really life is all about. I suppose it's possible you're sitting there and you're thinking about this, thinking, you know, I don't really have anything to share. I mean, if I was going to sit down and have a conversation about what God has done, it would be quiet. Well, I do think that that is the problem, isn't it? To live in such a way that you have to explain the way that you live to your children. That is, I think, what he's talking about here when you're passing along the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. To make decisions that are inexplicable apart from the grace of the Lord. Those are the things that I think he has in mind that make up the content of what you will pass on. And so I want you to be looking for those. I want you to be living in such a way that, that it requires the existence of God so that when you tell your children, you have something to say. Well, those, that, that's what you're to pass on, the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His might, His power, and His word. But why? Why would you care at all about passing those things along? He tells us that too here, doesn't he? In the, in the last couple verses there, 7 and 8, he says, why would you pass them along? So that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments so that they would not be like their father, stubborn and rebellious, whose heart was not steadfast and their spirit not faithful to God. There's negative and there's positive. And so the, the positive things, I want to spend a little bit of time here because I want you to be thinking about the work of God in your life and how you're going to pass it along to the next generation. So positively, you pass it along so that they will hope in God. So let me just ask you, how does your reaction to this pandemic and all of the inconveniences of this past year point to your hope in God. I ask you that because little eyes are watching. That's how they're going to figure out how you hope in God in hard times. Do your financial choices point to your hope in God? Or are you like the rich man that Jesus talked about who's building bigger barns 
I don't believe the children come hardwired to hope in God. But even if they did, everything else in their world tells them to trust themselves, to hope in what they can accumulate, to believe their friends. So many other things promise them happiness. And if you don't take the initiative, it will be very hard for them to place their hope in God. So you do it so they hope in God. You do it so they don't forget the works of God. And again, this is related, I think, to the, the what you pass along. But you do it so that they won't forget. Do you have something to say about this? I have a, I have a stack of stories that I could tell you about the work of God in our church. And I don't want to hide those from you or from uh, my children. So I'll tell you some of them now. Just in case you don't have some of your own, you can borrow mine. How's that? The first one I want to tell you is, it's still one of my favorites, is uh, just what God did in our church uh, to turn the church around financially. There was a time... Well, there was a time when we were encouraged by our, um, really by our denomination to uh, invest in uh, and put money in a foundation that would in six months um, double the money. Some philanthropists would give money and the, the money we put in would be used for good and then doubled. And it was called the New Era Foundation. And so we were encouraged to do that, so we... We were, having a, we were having the hardest time. I mean, we wanted to buy a church van. I think we needed $11,000 to buy a church van. And we did everything. I mean, this honest truth. We had a little road that went all the way around the foyer. And as people gave dollars, the little van, there was a little van there, just moved along the road. And you know what? The van just parked never got around the road. We just, we hadn't, we couldn't finish it. You know, like, what are we going to do? So we, so we decided, let's take this van money, put it in there, we'll double it, we'll have enough to buy the van. So we did, and sure enough, when the time was up, we were going to get our money out and have it doubled, and they said, you know what, we're going to um, just invite people to do this again. The philanthropists have asked us to have the money left in again, and they'll double it again. And then we thought, that would be good. We have some other projects around here. We could, you know, get a van and do some other stuff. And so we did. And so we um, put the money in again, and sure enough, at the end of that time period, we got all of our money out now times four. And within two weeks that the whole thing had collapsed and it had been exposed as a Ponzi scheme and nonprofits had lost millions of dollars, been stolen from them. And, but not us. We had, we got all of ours back. And we decided that, you know, that was at this point now ill-gotten gain, right, according to Proverbs. So, we weren't going to prosper from ill-gotten gain. That's the word that somebody used. And so 
we gave it all back to um, try and make whole some of those people who had lost so much. And you know what? I can't explain it, but that was really the turning point financially in our church. And it wasn't long, and we had a van, and it wasn't long until we bought, you know, a house, and then we bought another house, and um, the church paid those off right away. In fact, that's another story I wanted to tell you that I'm not going in chronological order now, but we bought two houses and thought, golly, our church only has 22 parking spots. We... <laughs> We need something to do something about parking. Well, we'll buy some houses. Then one day, we'll tear them all down. And then one day, we'll, you know, buy all the permits. And we'll grade the parking lot. And then we'll pave it. And then we'll spend millions of dollars getting us another, you know, few parking spots. Well, that was our plan. And turns out that right now, we have a letter of intent from the school district to buy the houses at uh, above the appraised price to um, they will build us a parking lot and then they will give us a parking agreement for 20 years for 80 spots. And that's a, that, I mean, I just can't even say how far that is from us having to do it ourselves. That, what am I gonna say? I mean, it's not here yet and it's, you know, I suppose it could still fall through, but it is a praiseworthy deed of the Lord that I want to definitely let you know how much, how excited I am about that. I mean, we wanted to start a church in Wilsonville. We, you know, found a place to rent. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been to Wilsonville, but there are three buildings on, I don't know, more than two acres in the corner of Beckman and Canyon Creek, right across from Intergraphics that the Lord enabled us to buy for $360,000. I mean, there isn't a person here who wouldn't have snatched that deal up just on your own. Um, we were having a, we were having an argument, I should say, probably amongst our staff a few years ago about whether we needed to do two services or not. It's a pre-pandemic, of course. And I thought we did. I said, we just got to push the church. We got to be a little more aggressive than we're being. And so uh, I said, yes, let's, we need to go to two services. Everyone else said, no, no, we like it full. It's going to be better if it's full. And, and they were probably right. But I was probably stubborn. And I said, no, let's do two services. So um, we were going to, I said, here's our compromise. We'll try it, right? We'll try it. If it works, we'll keep doing it. If it doesn't work, I'll admit you're right. And uh, the first Sunday, we were going to try it. Uh, we got to church, and the service started at 9 o'clock. At about 20 minutes to 9, there were 40 people in the foyer who we had never seen in our church before. And uh, I would love to say that I was right, but I had no idea that God would do that. And that next year, about one-third of our church was brand new because God had done an amazing thing. Um, and so I have some stories, and I would be happy to continue to tell them, except there are 72 verses in this psalm. And so we're just really getting started is all. But I wanted to give you some starting points because the Lord is working 
in our church. The Lord is working in his people. And it is a, it, I mean, I'm encouraging you to have your own stories, but I want you to know these are corporate stories here that are being told in Psalm 78. These are stories of the people of God. And so it's okay if you borrow the stories from the church. Well, then it says that so um, that they will keep his commands. We will do this so that the next generation will keep his commands. Again, I want to just ask you, how are his commands or how is his word being featured in your home? Do you read the Bible together? Do you memorize scripture together? Again, I just want to say this isn't natural. It won't happen by itself. And I, I'll even admit it took me about a dozen years probably to figure out uh, how this would work in our home. But I will tell you that if you help your family build a reservoir of God's word in their life, it will make an eternal difference. My good friend Matt just finished memorizing Romans. Now, don't, don't wait for me to say chapter and verse because it wasn't chapter and verse. He memorized the entire book of Romans. And he spent the last few years committing the book of Romans to memory. And I'm going to tell you, he has a reservoir now. He encounters stress at work. He encounters a neighbor who has questions. He encounters uh, you know, doubts or whatever in his own life. He's got it because he has committed himself to knowing and to putting into practice the commands of the Lord. But it isn't just knowing and understanding it. I just think thinking practically. Does God word, God's word inform your practical decisions? Like where you go on vacation or what you spend your money on. Do your children know what you give? What decisions have you made to intentionally love your neighbor as yourself? That is one of the two big commandments, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. What decisions you made to deliberately love your neighbor as yourself that your children know about? Do they know that's why you made such a decision? And so those are some of the positive reasons that he says, we're going to pass these things along so that this is true of our children. They keep his commands, they hope in the Lord, and they uh, know uh, what God has done. But then there's a negative reason, and he expounds the negative reason too. The negative reason is, <laughs> I love this, so that they won't be like their father's. The negative reason is so that whatever, whatever happened in the previous generation is intercepted and the trajectory is changed. This suggests to me, this suggests to me several things, but the one I'm going to share with you is simply this. You don't need perfect parents to have faithful children. You don't need you don't need faithful parents and grandparents to have an impact on the faith of the next generation so that they won't be like their fathers. Specifically, so that they won't be stubborn and rebellious. So that the children won't be stubborn 
and rebellious. And so as you train children, you need to know rebellion and stubbornness is a serious offense before God. So how do you train them to obey you and to not be stubborn towards you? That is the $64,000 question, isn't it? I want you to know, I think this is an important thing for adults too, not just children. I mean, we're, we're trying to lead the church in a way that is not stubborn and rebellious to approach the things that are going on in the world and the uh, governance that we receive so that we can be not stubborn and rebellious, but rather submissive, which is the opposite of rebellion. And I do believe that that is a beautiful quality in the eyes of the Lord. But I don't think that we just do whatever we want. We want to be, we want to model it and we want to live it and then we want to pass on that uh, submission to children so that they are not stubborn and rebellious. So that their hearts would be steadfast, not like their parents. Their heart would be established, that it would be steadfast. It's one so that they would be people who do not run or give up or turn aside. How does your heart get to be that way anyway? What happens in a person's light that establishes their heart? Well, one of the things that establishes your heart is that you hope in something that is beyond the circumstances you see that would normally um, you know, throw you all around. But rather, you can see beyond that. In fact, um, says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why is it not in vain? Because there's a resurrection. Because these circumstances don't tell the final story. Because the thing that would otherwise upset you or capsize you is not the most important thing in the world. Faith in the resurrection stabilizes your heart. You have conversations with your children and your own heart, right? To guard your heart for out of it are the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23. And then you approach this so that their spirit would not, or so their spirit would be faithful to God, not like their father. So you're going to pass these along so that the next generation is spiritually faithful. And I want you to know that there will always be times of doubt, always be reasons for doubt and confusion. But the bank that we've talked about filling here with the works of God and his might and his glorious deeds and the reservoir of his word that you store in your heart, these things are the antidote to this unfaithfulness and the way to establish a person's heart. Then verses 1 through 8, he talks about uh, what you pass on the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, and why you pass, pass them along so that people, the next generation puts their hope in God. 
But the reality is <laughs> that those are the relatively minor components of this psalm. You'll notice that that's only the first eight verses. There are still 64 more. Okay, there are still 64 more, right? These 64 more verses really don't talk about the what and they don't talk about the why so much. It is interesting because as you read the next 64 verses, it doesn't say there was this breakdown between a father and a son. There was this lack of communication between one generation and the next. It doesn't talk about that. So what does it talk about in the next 64 verses? The next 64 verses, and I think the, the, the burden of this psalm is the who. So not the what or the why, but the who. Answering and asking the question, who are you? What story are you part of? What are you telling yourself about who you are? In other words, passing the faith along to the next generation is not an individualistic rush to get a child saved as early as possible. Instead, it is about establishing their identity as part of the people of God, as a young man or a young woman who has been redeemed by the work of God and placed into the people of God so that they share in the inheritance of God and have the hope in the future that God provides. Who are you? And where do you fit in God's story? What role do you play? So how do you answer the question? Well, better yet, how do you get the next generation to answer the question in the right way? Who are you? I, I mean, I think this is the central question in the whole uh, chapter. And I'm just going to say, so that I don't have to read all 64, some of you are already hungry for lunch. The answer proposed in the next 64 verses is this. Who are you? You are part of God's redeemed people who belong to a faithful, promise-keeping God. You are part of God's redeemed people who belong to a faithful, promise-keeping God. What are you going to do about that? Child or grandchild, will you be faithful to him? So really what happens in these next verses is there, there are two passes over the same ground. Uh, verses 12 through 39 and 40 through 72 both pass over really the, the, the central work of God in redeeming Israel from Egypt. He, he, he redeems them from Egypt with plagues and power, takes them through the Red Sea. They wander in the wilderness. He preserves them. He, he exercises his judgment on uh, a generation, and he brings them into the promised land. Pass one, pass two. And so at the end of the first pass, verses 32 through 39, there is a summary. 
that explains the problem and explains why he told this story. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. Oh, here we go. They sought him. They repented and they sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. And we're just about to say, whew, finally. And then he says, verse 36, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How did they summarize it? They repented as long as the pressure was on and then it turned into flattery. They began to give God a nod and a wink and a, tried to keep him pacified somehow. They did, their, their hearts were not steadfast toward him and they were not faithful. You notice the, the way that this reiterates now verses 7 and 8, right? That their hearts were not steadfast. Their spirit was unfaithful. They didn't keep a covenant. In the same kind of language that he talked about why you pass it on, they weren't doing it. But then notice, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. See, if you were telling the same story now, it wouldn't be necessarily about Egypt, would it? It would be the same story about God and the work that he has done for you in Christ. That God was compassionate. They got atoned when he put Christ on the cross for your iniquity. And he didn't destroy you and he restrained his anger. And he remembers that you are but flesh. And so the glory of rehearsing the story, this big story of God, is that you find yourself in it. And you find yourself always a recipient of grace. But we have a similar Summary at the end of the second pass, verses 70 through 72, says he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. The summary of this last uh, pass through is that God provided a king. And not just any king, but a good king, a king with an upright heart and skillful hands, the, exactly the king you would want to have if you could pick a king. The end. Then it ends. There's no evaluation there. There's no like, well, then they were unfaithful and he forgave them and all those things we'd seen over and over and over. None of that. Just... God gave you a king and he had a skillful hand and an upright heart. The end. And Asaph stops with David. You'd expect him to stop with David because that brings him up to the current time. Asaph was uh, essentially the worship leader when David was king. And the fact that you have this abrupt end to this second 
um, the, the second stanza just puts it out there. Our, how are you going to respond to this king? How are you going to respond to God's kindness in giving you a king? Are you going to be like your forefathers? Or are you going to respond in faith? Which are you going to do? And this long and winding story of the people's rebellion ends abruptly with David. Are you going to trust the Lord? Are you going to be faithful? Or are you going to be like your forefathers? And the thing that encourages me here is that there is always a choice in the present. Yes, it may have been a mess before, and we don't know what's ahead, but right now, the, the question is put to you. What are you going to do? And I have to, I have to say, it's almost so obvious that I don't need to say it. But David uh, is the contemporary of Asaph, and he brings him right up to King David. He says, what are you going to do with this king? If we were telling the story now, we would totally say, you know what, there is one who's greater than David. His name is Jesus, and he does reflect God's faithful covenant promises, and he does reflect everything that God said he would do and when he atoned for your sins, and he gave you exactly what you needed, period. What are you going to do with Jesus? That's exactly what we would ask. Because Jesus is the greater David. David is but the foothill that points to the mountain peak of Jesus. He didn't take Jesus from the sheepfold like he took David. Jesus is the door of the sheep. He is the good shepherd. And so the question remains, what are you going to do with Jesus? To help you think about that question this morning we're going to celebrate communion. Because communion really is the recurring reminder of all that Jesus has done for his church. And so we're going to celebrate communion. And just like, just like the readers of this psalm were confronted with God's kindness and patience with the king, we too are confronted with God's kindness and patience in King Jesus. We're confronted with God's unrelenting commitment to his new covenant and to his people. And I hope that the very fact that we pause this morning in this way will force you not to be unfaithful in your spirit, not to flatter him with your mouth, but rather to, it will help you be steadfast in your heart in faith toward your suffering and resurrected Savior. And so if you trust God and are certain that you have a part in his promises and in his people, then this is for you. If you're here exploring this morning, we're glad you're here. But you just might want to have a conversation with God and tell him what is on your heart. I mean, there have been countless people over years who, as they approach communion, ask that very question and find when they examine their heart, they're not really sure they do believe. And I know really just about as many who decide to make that morning the morning that they repent and turn completely in faith to the Lord, that they move away from the murky edges and jump all the way in. And I hope that you will do that this morning as well. And so I've already heard 
some of you starting, but make sure you get the clear tab first and then the foil tab uh, for the juice. But let's just remember our Lord as he encouraged us to, to remember him. For I see from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Shall we pray? Our great God and Father, we are happy to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, for it is in his death and his resurrection that we have hope. It is in your work through Jesus and in drawing us to yourself that we are included in the promise. And so we just want to stop and praise you. Father, we ask for your help to marvel as we should and how much you love us, and how much you manifested your love for us in Christ. And then, Father, I do pray, too, that you would be gracious to us so that we might um, be able to have an another generation, and then another generation after that, who also trusts in your praiseworthy deeds. And so we praise you for the most praiseworthy deed of all, the giving of your son and his resurrection. We pray this in his name. Amen.